So we are concluding our study in the book of Jude this morning and uh, we've taken a lot longer going through Jude than I originally intended but hopefully you found it a blessing as we've done so. I certainly have. I've enjoyed going through this book. There's so much in here and of course Jude assumes that we know a lot from the Old Testament and the things that he writes. He just writes as if we understand and we know those things that he refers to but he uses them as examples to instruct and teach us. Uh, what I'd like to do to start with is just take us through the Living Bible paraphrase uh, of this book. It's only just one chapter, just 25 verses, uh, just to get the feel of the fact that this was a letter that Jude had written to believers, to you and I, effectively, to those that were uh, in the first century and throughout the history of the church. This has been such a letter of uh, encouragement, of warning and so on. So let's just read through this and then we'll go into our study of the last five verses, which is where we've got to. So, from Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to Christians everywhere, beloved of God and chosen by him, may you be given more and more of God's kindness, peace and love. Dearly loved friends, I've been planning to write you some thoughts about the salvation God has given us, but now I find I must write of something else instead urging you to stoutly defend the truth that God gave once for all to his people, to keep without change through the years. I say this because some godless teachers have wormed their way in among you, saying that after we've become Christians, we can do just as we like, without fear of God's punishment. The fate of such people was written long ago, for they have turned against our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. My answer to them is, remember this fact, which you know already, that the Lord saved a whole nation of people out of the land of Egypt, and then killed every one of them who did not trust and obey him. And I remind you of those angels who were once pure and holy, but turned to a life of sin. Now God has them chained up in prisons of darkness, waiting for the judgment day. And don't forget the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbouring towns, all full of lust of every kind, including lust of men for other men. Those cities were destroyed by fire and continue to be a warning to us that there is a hell in which sinners are punished. Yet these false teachers carelessly go right on living their evil, immoral lives, degrading their bodies and laughing at those in authority over them, even scoffing at the glorious ones. Yet Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, when he was arguing with Satan about Moses' body, did not dare to accuse even Satan or jeer at him, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. But these men mock and curse at anything they do not understand. And like animals, they do whatever they feel like, thereby ruining their souls. Woe upon them, for they followed the example of Cain, who killed his brother. And like Balaam, they will do anything for money. And like Korah, they have disobeyed God and will die under his curse. When these men join you at the love feast of the church, they are evil smears among you, laughing and carrying on, gorging and stuffing themselves without a thought for others. They are like clouds blowing over dry land without giving rain, promising much but producing nothing. They are like fruit trees without any fruit at picking time. They are not only dead but doubly dead, for they have been pulled out, roots and all, to be burned. All they leave behind them is shame and disgrace, like the dirty foam left along the beach by wild waves. They wander around looking as bright as stars, but ahead of them 
is the everlasting gloom and darkness that God has prepared for them. Enoch, who lived seven generations after Adam, knew about these men and said this about them. See, the Lord is coming with millions of his holy ones. He will bring the people of the world before him in judgment to receive just punishment and to prove the terrible things they have done in rebellion against God, revealing all they have said against him. These men are constant gripers, never satisfied, doing whatever evil they feel like. They are loudmouth show-offs. And when they show respect for others, it is only to get something from them in return. Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told you. That in the last times there would come these scoffers, whose whole purpose in life is to enjoy themselves in every evil way imaginable. They stir up arguments. They love the evil things of the world. They do not have the Holy Spirit living in them. But you, dear friends, must build up your lives ever more strongly upon the foundation of our holy faith, learning to pray in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Stay always within the boundaries where God's love can reach and bless you. Wait patiently for the eternal life that our Lord Jesus Christ in his mercy is going to give you. Try to help those who argue against you. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save some by snatching them as from the very flames of hell itself. And as for others, help them to find the Lord by being kind to them. But be careful that you yourselves aren't pulled along into their sins. Hate every trace of their sin while being merciful to them as sinners. And now, all glory to him who alone is God, who saves us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, splendor and majesty, all power and authority, are his from the beginning, and his they are, and his they evermore shall be. He is able to keep you from slipping and falling away, to bring you sinless and perfect into his glorious presence with mighty shouts of everlasting joy. Amen. So that's the letter. It's a paraphrase. Um, most of that sits really well. There's a few things we've, we've gone through, we've, uh, we've explored as we've gone through the, the text. Um, but just to remind you again, of course, this epistle that we're concluding this morning was written by Jude, uh, half-brother of Jesus, according to the flesh. Uh, Matthew 13 uh, tells us that uh, Jesus had at least four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Jude. Of course, James, the writer of the letter of James that we've studied not that long ago. And Jude, of course, we're looking at here. And Jesus had at least two sisters. So they all grew up in this family. Now, evidently. Uh, none of them believed in Jesus and believed he was the Messiah all the time he was on earth with them. It was only after the resurrection that they came to faith. It's incredible. I mean, we saw when we looked at James's letter, how James kind of almost writes with that, you know, I really regret that missed opportunity. I could sat and have conversations with him day after day, you know, maybe as they would have been the older two brothers, they may have shared a room. Um, you know, we don't know the, the, the family set up and setting, but, you know, James could have had those opportunities and he kind of missed it. And he encourages us not to let the days go by without having that abiding relationship. And Jude, in a similar way now, is going to conclude his letter by effectively saying those same kind of things. Of course, this is written to all believers. It wasn't written to a single church. And it's written to warn and to encourage. Jude urges us to remember 
the things that we have learned and heed the warnings. Now, of course, in his mind, he's thinking of things that we would know or it would assume we know. And obviously, we've gone through this study. We've kind of tried to fill in some of the, the, the gaps. Of course, he looks at the wilderness wanderings, the exodus and so on, uh, and how that was such a lesson. That whole generation died out because of their unbelief, and their lack of faithfulness to God. Then the days of Noah have been alluded to. We've seen that. The situation with Sodom and Gomorrah, the death of Moses and the interesting debate between Michael and Satan regarding the body of Moses. And then the situation with Cain uh, back in Genesis 4. And then, of course, Balaam and Enoch. We'll touch briefly on those things again in a moment. The whole purpose, though, is to contend for the faith. Uh, this is the faith that has once been delivered to the saints. The, the faith that we have as Christians, it doesn't change. It doesn't give way to uh, popular culture, to the trends of the time. It doesn't give way to uh, opinions. It's simply the faith that has been given that we hold to. It's that belief and trust in Jesus Christ as the only son of God, the only way for salvation, and that there is salvation in no other name except the name of Jesus. That our works cannot contribute to our salvation, but our works are expected as evidence of our salvation. Of course, we see in the first part of the book the why to contend. It's because there are apostates uh, and they're subtle in their perversions, uh, but their doom is also certain. And we've seen of their impious ways, their utter falsity. The second part of the book, in a sense, if we were to divide it into two, there's various ways we can break it down, but is the how to contend. So the first part, why to contend? Because of these apostates. The second is how do we contend with them? Well, simply because we've already been given advance information about apostates in the past and how they were dealt with. And these are the things that Judas alluded to. And then we have this build, pray, keep, look, effectively, that we're going to build on and look at this morning. And then that we should support those who contend for the faith. Now, we've gone through, and I just want to take you through again briefly, the character of these apostates that Jude has been warning us about. Uh, he tells us they're filthy dreamers. The imaginations of their thoughts and their hearts is unpure. Uh, they defile the flesh. They despise dominion. They don't like authority. They speak evil of dignities, including angelic beings and so on. And they speak evil of things they just do not understand. And they act on carnal instincts. And then we saw that they've gone in the way of Cain, then ran greedily after the error of Balaam and destroyed themselves in the gainsaying of Korah. These three Old Testament examples that Jude gives us. And really Jude's analysis of that is very simple. That with Cain, he rejected God's word. Although God's word had been clear that he knew how to bring a sacrifice and offering, he decided to bring his, his, uh, the fruit of his own hands, his own labor. And that would never be acceptable to God. In fact, it's exactly the verse that Leon shared with us this morning. <clears throat> the mistake uh, that Balaam made was that he assumed that God's grace was a license for sin. Uh, well, that's not the case. And Paul makes that case very clearly in the New Testament, particularly in books like Galatians. And then of Korah, he just didn't appreciate the spiritual things, the role he'd been given, the privileged position he was already in. But he didn't appreciate those things. And so we see that these apostates, just like uh, Cain, just like 
uh, Balaam, just like Korah, they want to come to God on their terms. They want to enjoy worldly pleasures. They're not prepared to let them go. And they want position and recognition. And this is why Jude is giving us this, so we can identify these kind of characters when we come across them within the church at large. And there are plenty in the church at large. We're told that they're spots, or actually the, the Greek term there is hidden rocks just under the surface that could shipwreck a ship. Uh, and th th you don't notice them, but they're there when you meet together. You know, there's, there's opportunities maybe after a service where you get to fellowship and talk. They're the kind of individuals that would go round one to, to another and just start spreading ideas and, uh, and being uh, just subversive in the things they say. They feed themselves without fear is what we're told. And typically when they get together for fellowship meals, um, they're not bothered about other people. They just want to take what they can get for themselves. And then Jesus says that they're clouds without water. There's nothing more disappointing when you're needing rain and there's a cloud and then it just doesn't deliver. And that's what these are like. They make all sorts of boasts and promises, but they don't deliver. And they're carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's an expression that Paul uses. But it's exactly what these individuals are like. We've seen so many of those winds of doctrine blow through the church where people jump onto this particular bandwagon and they think this is the, 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 the big thing. Uh, and then all of a sudden that's forgotten and there's another thing and these apostates are just like that they, they jump onto these little trends that are going around within the church and this is now the most important thing whether it be 40 days of purpose or alpha or uh, whether it be toronto blessing or, or any of these things that kind of sweep through uh, and everybody jumps on thinking this is the great thing uh, without realizing the dangers in some of those things now Jude says that they're also like trees whose fruit withers. And in fact, they're without fruit. At the time of harvest, there's nothing on them uh, that's of any value. Uh, we're told they're actually twice dead. They're plucked up by the roots and there is raging waves of the sea. Uh, you know, you see on the seaside sometimes that kind of horrible foam that, that is churned up by the, the waves. And it's saying these individuals are just like that. And that they're like wandering stars or a meteorite. They're very bright for a moment, but they very quickly disappear. Um, they're not, there's no lasting uh, uh, impact uh, in terms of what they can bring. Uh, it's just very short-lived. And then the last few things here, then the murmurers and complainers, of course, we're told to do all things without murmuring and complaining in Philippians 2.14. They walk after their own lust and their mouth speaks great swelling words, just as ultimately Antichrist will be famous for uh, his mouth speaking great swelling words. But these apostates are forerunners in their own way of that kind of mindset. Um, being influenced by the devil. Uh, we're told, of course, in contrast, that no corrupt word should proceed from our mouths in Ephesians 4.19. And then these apostates have men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In other words, they, they will say whatever they need to say to get the position and the recognition that they want. They'll, they'll simply butter people up or they, they may uh, say you know, all sorts of pleasantries, but simply to their own ends. Uh, we are, told, of course, told to be impartial. Uh, James makes that point very clearly, not to uh, flatter people to get what we want. And then the last few on this list, they, they are mockers, uh, just as Peter had foretold. And, and Jude quotes Peter as scripture, which is interesting. Of course, it's the New Testament. Um, we'll talk some more about some of the, the interesting things about the timing of all of these things. But clearly, Peter had written his uh, letters before Jude writes his, and Jude now quotes from Peter as scripture. 
And we're told that they walk after their own lusts as opposed to walking in the spirit or walking in the way. They're the Old and New Testament derivatives of the same thing. In the New Testament, we're told to walk in the spirit. Uh, Paul tells us in the Old Testament, in Psalm 119, it's all about walking in the way according to the word of God. They separate themselves to avoid accountability. They don't like to be under anybody's authority. Uh, they keep themselves separate. Uh, and they're sensual, literally soulish. Uh, is the Greek idea, uh, but their freedom is actually bondage. And we're told, finally, that they are without the Spirit. Of course, that answers the question, are these saved? No, because if they had the Spirit, they could be saved, but without the Spirit, they cannot be saved. When somebody is born again of the Spirit of God, then they are saved, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within them. And yet these individuals, we're clearly told, they are without the spirit now jude writes all of these things to warn us what these people are like to warn us that they are in the church we, we need to be careful that we don't fall under the illusion that well that that wouldn't occur in our particular church or any churches that we go to or attend either now or in the future before the lord returns these individuals are there and we need to be so careful that they don't deceive us and lead us astray well, with all of that said, Jude is now going to close these last five verses, and particularly the first three of the, the final verses, uh, with an, uh, an encouragement, an admonition to us. That's these apostates all dealt with and looked at, and, and we've covered that now. So the question is, what about us? What about you and I? And so Jude says this, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some, have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. And now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion, and power both now and ever. Amen. And that's how the book concludes. We're just going to go back now and look at those five verses. I just want to mention, though, that this seems to be the last book of the Bible. Now, I know Revelation, chronologically, the way we have it in our Bibles is the last book, and rightly so, the Lord's intended it to be that way. Um, well, I was doing a study a little while ago, um, looking at the dates of when all these books were written. And I'm pretty convinced, and you can come to your own conclusion, I'm pretty convinced that Jude was actually the last book written. The Revelation certainly was written before this. Peter's letters, John's letters, and so on, all written before Jude writes. That means this is, in a sense, the seal, the final book uh, in terms of the canon of scripture that was actually written. And I think it's interesting that it's concluded in the way it is. And we'll look at, uh, again, those last two verses in a, in a moment, what Jude actually says. Uh, so I think there's some significance in all of that. I'll leave you to, to dig in and uh, look at those things in a bit more detail. But certainly um, very much indebted to Bill Cooper for the work that he's done, uncovering some of the information that's been there, but other scholars have either uh, ignored or uh, intentionally uh, obfuscated so that we wouldn't understand when these things were written. A lot of critics will try and tell us that the Bible books were written a long time after the event. Uh, Bill Cooper thoroughly demonstrates and demolishes their their arguments and shows that the books of the Bible were all written before 70 AD. Now that's quite staggering. It means they're all written in what we would refer to as the eyewitness period, the time when these people were still alive. 
And clearly, you can't make up stories and fabricate things uh, when you've got people living who know the truth of those events themselves. Uh, it just adds greater weight and authenticity uh, to everything we have recorded in the New Testament. And uh, as I say, there's really compelling arguments now that show this to be the case. So I'll come back to that thought a little bit later. Uh, what Jude really is going to give us now in these next three verses is the key to an active Christian life. You know, not a nominal Christian life. Sometimes that expression is used. People speak about a nominal Christian. You know, a Christian who's someone, a person who's someone in, a Christian by name only. Uh, that's nominal. That's not what we're talking about. It's somebody who really is living a Christian life. And this is the encouragement that Jude is going to give us. In fact, we could break it down under seven headings, if you like, uh, seven Christian practices that guarantee our security. Now, of course, our security is in Christ and in Christ alone. And you'll see that all of these actually dovetail into that. They all speak of being in Christ. The first is building yourself up on your most holy faith. And we're going to look at that in detail in a moment. The next one, praying in the Holy Spirit. Then keeping yourself in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Having compassion, which speaks of denying self. Showing compassion for others. Doing good works and evangelism. Those seven things, they should all be characteristics of a life that is being lived in obedience to Jesus Christ. So let's just go through now and look at the text and see what we can uh, glean from these things, what the Holy Spirit has to say to us this morning. So verse 20 again. But you, beloved, building yourselves, uh, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And now this is the key to these few verses. Keep yourselves in the love of God. All right, that's the point that, that Jude is really making. The first two points are there, uh, building yourselves up, keeping, uh, praying in the Holy Ghost. The reason is to keep yourselves in the love of God. And he says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So the objective is to keep yourself in the love of God. And so to do that, Jude gives us two anchors primarily that we have here. Firstly, build yourself up in your most holy faith. And secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. So what is our mandate? Well, the mandate is clear that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. What does that mean? Well, it's not saying that we should keep loving God. Of course, we should keep loving God, but that's not what this is saying. It's saying that we should keep yourselves in a place where you could be a recipient of God's love. Let me give you an example to try and help me make it clearer. The father of the prodigal son that we have recorded in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 15, 11 to 32. That father of the prodigal son never stopped loving his wayward son, even though his son went off into the world and did all the things that he did. However, the prodigal son removed himself from his father's presence and from his father's blessing. And this, I believe, is what Jude is trying to communicate to us. He's saying, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in that place of blessing. Why? Well, it's very clear. We go through, there's a number of scriptures we could cite, but probably one of the clearest is Psalm 66, verse 18. I've quoted it many times. I think it's so important. We read there, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
Now, of course, God can do anything. God is God. God is outside of time. There's nothing that God cannot do except, of course, sin. God cannot sin. God cannot lie, etc. But it says here that the Lord will not. And really it's saying the Lord cannot. The Lord chooses to not hear you if you're in a place that you're regarding iniquity, sin, in your heart. If you're dwelling on something that is sinful, if you know that it's wrong, the Lord will close his ears. The Lord will not allow you into his presence. Why? Because God is holy. And if we come before God, we have to come cleansed. That's the only way we can come into his presence. We can't have an audience with God if we're coming into his presence with iniquity, unconfessed sin, actions, deeds in our life. You see, God cannot allow anything in his presence that is unholy. First Timothy 6.16 is your proof verse for that one. Uh, but that's why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoting, of course, Psalm 22. Why is it Jesus said that? Well, because up until that point, he always called God Father. But now, as standing in our place, as he's crucified, as he's on the cross, Jesus is there bearing the weight of our sin. And so that relationship, that uh, freedom of access to his father is suddenly broken on account of our sin. And so Jesus cries out, my God, he doesn't call him father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because again, he can't come into God's presence carrying our sin. We can't go into God's presence carrying sin. And so this verse is that reminder, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord cannot allow us into his presence. He cannot hear our prayers and requests. You know, there's a number of verses in the New Testament that allude to these things. Of course, in James, we're told that even within regard to a marriage, our prayers can be hindered. If things are not right, it's really important that we understand that if we're going to go before God, our hearts have to be pure and clean. So Israel were another example. They were espoused to God. Jeremiah tells us this as if they were engaged, that God was a husband to them and they were his, as it were, his bride. It's interesting in the Old Testament, you have God the Father and Israel are his bride. In the New Testament, you have Jesus, the bridegroom and the church are as his bride. Of course, the whole idea of marriage is there to demonstrate the love of Christ to his church. But you see, God led Israel and promised them blessing for obedience. Now, at this point, we could do a little divert and we could go into Deuteronomy 28 and you could read the first 15 or so verses. And it just speaks of the blessing that God wanted to pour out upon them if they would just walk with him. The rest of the chapter, Deuteronomy 28, is all about the curses that would come upon them if they forsook God, if they broke that covenant, that relationship that they had. You see, they had this opportunity to walk in the blessing of the Lord. God would go before them. He would lead them. He gave them incredible victories from the leaving of Egypt to the entering in uh, to the Canaan. But that generation under Joshua were faithful but following that everyone did what was right in their own days and they forsook God and so his blessing was removed you see Jude is saying keep yourself in the love of God keep yourself in that place where God can give you these blessings where you can know and experience the love of God another example of this would be of course Samson 
Samson knew the blessing of God in his life because his parents had made this vow, this vow of a Nazarite for him from the time he was born. His hair would grow and so on. And as a result of this, God's spirit was upon him and gave him this incredible power. But when he allowed that to be broken, that vow to be broken, when uh, Delilah had his hair cut and so on, he, he allowed himself to be removed from that position and that place of blessing before God's throne. As a result, the power and the presence of God left him. And of course, we know the story how he was arrested. He was put in prison. His eyes were gouged out and he was left to suffer until such a time that his hair grew again. And then God restored to him the blessing and the power and the presence. And of course, the end of Samson's life. We know the account in the book of Judges of how he ended up uh, killing more of the Philistines in his last final act. Uh, filled with the spirit of God than he had at any other time in his life. But a great example of somebody who did not keep himself in the love of God. You know, you think of the situation back in the Old Testament in chapter 4 of Genesis with Cain. Now Cain has already been referred to by Jude. But there's this quote or this statement of God to Cain. He said, if thou doest well, shall not thou be accepted? It's interesting because it's saying that Cain could have been accepted if only he had come to God on God's terms. But you see, instead Cain came, came to God with the best of his own produce, the work of his own hands. And of course, all our righteousness are just as filthy rags before God. So Cain, although knowing that it was the shed blood of a lamb that would bring atonement for his sin, he decided to ignore God's word and he comes to God on his own terms. As such, he removes himself from that place of blessing. And it's interesting. The statement, if thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. What a great little warning for us, because it reminds us that if we remove ourselves from the love of God, we leave ourselves open to sin. And that's the real problem. And that's what Jude, of course, is warning us and encouraging us to consider in all of these things. Because the moment we leave ourselves exposed to sin and the wiles of the devil, we leave ourselves exposed to these um, apostates, these people that are have crept into the church, that are looking to take the gullible and to lead them astray, those who are not walking with the Lord. So, again, the objective of these verses is to keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in that place of blessing. Or if you like the Old Testament version, keep walking in the way. Psalm 119. You know, it's probably my favorite psalm. All psalms are fantastic. But it's just a psalm that focuses on the word of God. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. It's just such a great statement. It's double blessing. Um, so... The Old Testament speaks about walking the way. In the New Testament, Galatians 5.16 speaks about walking in the spirit. That's what we should do. That's how we keep ourselves in the place of blessing, keeping yourselves in the love of God. Now, that's the objective. That's what we're trying to do. And Jude gives us two uh, tools, if you like, that we can use to keep us there. The first one, he says, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Okay, so how do we build ourselves up on our most holy faith? And how does this keep us in the love of God? Well, in the Greek, 
this word building is in the arrowist tense. Uh, you can look at these things in Bible commentaries and so on. And it just has the implication that it means to build and keep on building. Do you get the idea that it's not a once only thing? This is a constant action, a day by day choice, building yourselves up in your or on your most holy faith. One of the um, comments on this said to finish the structure of which the foundation has already been laid. Jesus has laid that foundation. Jesus wants to do that work of sanctification in us. But there is still an element where we have to be complicit. We have to agree. We have to allow God to do that work in us. First uh, Corinthians 3 uh, speaks of the foundation. There is no foundation laid than that which can be laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, although you're saying building yourselves up, don't mistake this as something that you have to do all by your own efforts and your own strength. What it's saying is that we need to do this in Christ. First Peter 2 verse 5 speaks of us all being built up into this. We're, we're living stones being built up into this house for God. See, we cannot build. Christ alone builds the house. So notice the key in this verse, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. That's how we build. We don't build by going out and getting tools and bricks and whatever else. We go out and we build by having faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we build up our lives. That's how we stay. And really, it's all about trusting Jesus to do everything. Not that we can do part of it and Jesus will help fill in some of the gaps we miss. No, that we go to him and realize that we are dependent upon Jesus for everything in our walk with him. Now, a great scripture that amplifies this is found in John chapter 15. Jesus said, verse 4, abide in me. And there you go. That's a great summary of all that we're looking at here. But abide in me. And I in you. See the relationship. You abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you could do nothing. Notice you can't bring forth fruit unless you are abiding in him. But if you are abiding in him then he abides in us. It's this incredible relationship. As I was going through this and just, just thinking it through and praying it through last night, it just struck me about the manna in the wilderness, how they had to go out daily and gather that manna, the food that they needed while they're wandering in the wilderness. It's exactly the same for us. We have to go out daily and get this manna. Of course, Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. That is the relationship that God wants us to have with him through his son. So, but you beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. That's the first thing. It's all about abiding in Jesus Christ through that faith in him. And then the second thing we're told is praying in the Holy Ghost. Back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, uh, Jesus said there, be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him. What this tells us is that actually a lot of the time we don't know the things that we have need of. You know, we go to God and we ask for all sorts of things, but God knows exactly what we need. And it follows through that we don't know also what to ask. We don't know how to pray for things. 
often if we just start praying, it will be very calm. It will all be based upon our current understanding of our current circumstances. And so we'll, we'll pray for deliverance from this or for help in this particular situation or that God would solve this or deal with that. You know, so many of the trials we go through are God ordained and God allows them to shape us and mold us. You know, God allows them sometimes to chasten us, but also um, more often than not, just to bring blessing into our lives in ways that we hadn't imagined or could never have seen beforehand. And so when we pray, we have to learn to pray in the Holy Spirit, to pray, allowing him to lead us in our prayers. When we have our prayer meetings, we always start by asking the Lord to lead us in our prayers. You know, it's never a good idea to go into a prayer meeting with a list of things you want to pray about. Now, I say that in the context of it's good to have things that we can pray for each other about. That's right and proper. But if we go in with this list, we're sometimes tuning out from the Holy Spirit. And what we're focusing upon is what we want to say. What we need to be doing is going to God and saying, Lord, what do you want me to pray about? You see, we don't know why God is doing certain things in our lives or in the lives of others. And sometimes our natural inclination is to pray about a particular individual that's going through a trial. Oswald Chambers uh, used to comment on this. He used an expression saying we become amateur providences in another person's life. In other words, we see somebody going through a difficult time and we want to jump in and pray that God ends their suffering or ends the, the trial they're going through without realizing that God is allowing that for his purpose. And so we try to jump in and help without realizing that actually we're going to hinder. You know, we need to be going to God and seeking him and asking him to help us to pray, to lead us as we pray. And then as we pray, our prayers are effective because we are praying in accordance with God's will. And that's why we're told in scripture many times that whatever you ask, praying in faith, you'll receive. Because if we're praying in the Holy Spirit, we're only going to be praying in accordance with God's will. So these two things then we're given uh, to, to keep ourselves in the love of God. Firstly, abide in Christ. Secondly, pray in the Spirit and learn to pray in the Spirit. When you go to pray, go to God and say, Lord, how should I pray? What would you like me to pray about? Just lay upon my heart. And all of a sudden, and many of us have been there, I know we've talked about these things, suddenly the Lord will just give you a name or a situation or a circumstance or something about that you should pray for. And you just know that it's the right thing. Back in Ezekiel, there's a verse that talks about Ezekiel uh, or the Lord looking for somebody to stand in the gap and pray on behalf of the nation. At the time, the Lord says, but I found none. Now, that's the case that we are often in. There's so many things going on in our country, in our world, in, in our community, in our church, in our own lives. You know, and, and the Lord sometimes is looking for us to stand in the gap and to pray, to, to take up uh, arms, as it were, against the enemy, praying in faith in the spirit. But sometimes we're just so distracted by other things that we don't go to the Lord and ask him to help us, to lead us in our prayers. <clears throat> now, notice the last part of this uh, verse 21 so not only if we do those first two things we'll be able to keep ourselves in the love of god or keep ourselves in that place of blessing but looking for the mercy of our lord jesus christ unto eternal life this is the the third one if you like of this group so two key things are given already but this is like a, a an additional thing that we are given that will keep us in the love of god that is that we are looking for the mercy 
of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. What does that mean? Well, it means that we're to be constantly looking for his return for us. That is the mercy. You see, why mercy? Because God has not appointed us to wrath. But that we should obtain salvation. We should obtain this mercy unto eternal life. Of course, if we are looking for his return, we will keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So just a quick recap then of these things. To keep ourselves in the love of God, we need to abide in Christ daily. We need to pray in the Holy Spirit and we need to keep looking for his return because that changes our perspective, our changes our outlook. Those three things will ensure that we remain in the love of God. There's a golden rule. And let me read this to you from Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved brother, uh, I'm sorry, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not uh, as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, this is the key, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why am I saying that? Why am I saying this is a golden rule? Because the next few verses we're going to look at speak about our interaction and our dealings with other people. But the really important thing we must understand is that we must make sure that our own walk with the Lord is right before we step out and minister to others. In other words, before we to others, make sure all is well at home. In your own personal life, your own personal walk with the Lord, and also within your household, within your family. It's so important. That's why one of the qualifications of those who would be leaders within a church or a fellowship is that they must look after and manage their own households well. Because if you can't take care of your own household, how can you care for the church of God is what Paul tells both Titus and Timothy, respectively. So, again... Be aware that your own salvation, your own walk with the Lord has to come first. You have to make sure that you're in the right place with God because there are dangers of stepping out in ministry that if you're not aware of can end up pulling you away from God yourself. So we need to make sure before we look at the next verses, we get it right. And that's why those three verses, or the verses we've just looked at, uh, verse 20 and 21, have to come before verse 22. Now verse 22 says, and of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now, when we went through that list of seven things at the beginning of this, I said that the, the, these three were the last three. Having compassion, which is denying ourselves, we'll talk about that in a second, doing good works and evangelism. And they're all really important things, but always make sure that you are working at your own salvation before you start to step into this arena and start to think through these things. Because if your life is right with God, if your walk is right with God, then you will be just a blessing to others because that fruit in you will overflow, it will abound. And then you will be a blessing and an encouragement and a help to others. If you're not, then you need to be so careful because we'll go through this. Let's look at this. Verse 22, uh, it says, and of some. Now, why some? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. One, partly because there are people out there who we may have the opportunity to witness to, minister to, some who have been deceived by these apostates. And that's the group we're talking about, by the way, just to be clear. What Jude is saying here is because these apostates exist within the church, it leaves a big uh, harvest field of individuals who have been deceived or led astray, who are not themselves apostate, 
but who need rescuing effectively. Uh, but Jesus says, and of some have compassion. Now, why some? Well, because some people will just harden their hearts. Some people will themselves, themselves become apostate and follow after those that we've been speaking about in the previous studies. So we can't win every single soul for Jesus Christ because not everybody will be willing to repent and trust and look to their saviour. So we need to understand that because otherwise we can waste a lot of time on an individual or individuals where we would love to see them saved, but actually they've hardened their hearts. Now, we need to ask for wisdom. We should never give up on anybody. But sometimes the Lord will lead you away or will not allow you to have a conversation with somebody that you feel you'd like to. Well, it's maybe because the Lord knows the hearts of those people. And so Jews says, out of some, have compassion. Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, everyone has natural affinities. Some people we like and others we do not like. We must never let those likes and dislikes rule in our Christian life. If we walk in the light as God is in the light, God will give us communion with people for whom we have no natural affinity. Why am I sharing that quote? Well, because again, this some, and of some have compassion, it's not just the ones that you like. It's not just the people you like, your friends, your acquaintances, your colleagues, people that have similar interests to you. It's anybody, anybody that the Lord leads you to. People that otherwise you may have no, as Oswald Chambers puts it, no natural affinity with. This morning I was just reading in my own uh, quiet time uh, this morning of the uh, situation of the, the Good Samaritan, as we affectionately know him. Um, you know, and this was somebody who was, Looked, or the, the one who was injured, the, the, the rabbi, the priest, they, they, they walk, the Levite, they walk past, they don't stop and help. Um, but this individual, this Samaritan walks past and sees this individual that's uh, been beaten and left for dead. And he has compassion on him. Same use, same word there. Uh, has compassion on him. You know, and this is for us to take note of that, you know, we're not to choose which sum we do and don't care for which ones we do and don't have compassion on. As I say, we need to be careful that some would just be time wasters. They would just, the devil would use them to distract us from reaching those that would listen. That's why in Revelation repeatedly we have that statement that is also echoed in uh, the parables of Jesus. Him that has ears to hear, let him hear. It implies that not everybody will have ears to hear. But again, we are to have compassion on those the Lord leads us to, whether we have a natural affinity with them or not. And notice again the statement here, have compassion. I do love the quote of Charles Spurgeon where he says, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. You see, it's a hallmark of a believer who is recognized that we've been saved from sin, from hell, from eternity separated from God. It's a hallmark of those believers to want to reach out and to share our faith with others. Now, we're not all, in that sense, evangelists. There's a particular ministry, a particular calling uh, of evangelists, and yet we are all called to evangelize. You know, every one of us should look to share the hope, the reason for the hope that we have within us, with meekness and fear, we're told. Again, Matthew 10, verse 8, Jesus spoke to the disciples when they were going out in ministry. He says, freely you have received, freely give. Well, you and I, We've received freely, incredibly blessed to have the grace poured upon us that we have. And so we also should show that grace to others. 
And we're told also that we should make a difference. It's interesting because often we don't think we are making a difference. And one of the problems is not that we don't want to make a difference, but we feel that we're not. And so we end up, we get, we end up getting disillusioned. But remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see, the one who sows is not necessarily the one who waters. And the one who waters is not necessarily the one who reaps. You know, we need to be faithful to God. And if the Lord leads us to speak to somebody and gives us opportunity, be faithful. Step out in faith. Trust God. Don't worry that you don't convert them there at that particular moment. Just be honest to God and trust him that he will lead you. And what you say will be with the wisdom that he gives you and will touch that individual in a way that you can't possibly imagine. You could be the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth Christian that individual has sp spoken to that day. You don't know what part of the journey that you are playing. You're just called to be faithful in these things. There's an interesting verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Paul's speaking about the time of the rapture when he's saying this. And he says, well, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? He says, are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Now, it's interesting. If you take this apart and think about it, Paul's saying at the time of the rapture, we're going to look around. And we're going to see a whole bunch of people that we had opportunity to witness to that maybe we weren't even expecting to see again. But they will be that crown of rejoicing for each of us as we look and see those that we witness to. Paul obviously planted many churches. He didn't know how many of those would stay the course. He didn't know how many of those truly were walking with the Lord after he'd moved on. And yet he says here in Thessalonians to the Thessalonian Christians that you know, the, the crown of rejoicing that we're looking forward to is even looking around and seeing people that we've had an influence over through our witness, through our testimony, through our lives, seeing them at the time of the rapture as we're caught up before the throne. And I'm sure that we will find people there around us. That we will be amazed that they came to faith. People that we didn't think would listen. They seemed so antagonistic toward the gospel. Or they were just mocking us. And yet actually our lives were an incredible witness to them. I've shared before many occasions when the Lord has uh, used me in conversations with people. And I didn't think it would have any impact whatsoever. And then sometime later I've heard back that actually really spoke to somebody. Really touched their hearts. And again it's just of the Lord. It's not of us. So the question is, are you making a difference? That's what we are called to do. And then it says, and others save with fear. What does this mean? Well, with extreme caution, lest you be engulfed. The idea here is simply pulling them out of the fire. But be careful. Before you're going to pull someone out of a fire, you need to make sure that you're not going to be caught up in that fire yourself. That's why I go back to that golden rule I said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Make sure that you are abiding in Christ, praying in the spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God. Then you are in a place that you can minister to others and others safe with fear. So again, be conscious, be conscious of your own predicament, own situation. Don't allow others to pull you in to their deceit. Again, our attitude to sin must be the same as God's. It goes on and speaks here, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Of course, we could jump back and look at Joshua, uh, Achan's sin and so on. Uh, draw things out of that, but I'll uh, let you do that in your own time if you want to. Yeah, but even a little contaminant is enough to ruin a priceless garment. And that's effectively what we've been given. You know, and we don't want it to get spotted by the world, the things of this world. 
We need to be so careful. Which brings us to these last two verses. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Note that God is able to do three things here. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The first thing that God is able to do is to keep you from falling. The next thing is to present you faultless. And the third is to fill you with exceeding joy. Now notice there's an, an and there as well. These are, these, are, it, it, these are distinct things that God is able to do. Now I'll just, just quickly just take you through this as we close. God is able to keep you from falling. God, is, God will make a way of escape from temptation. But we each have to choose. So this statement now unto him that is able. God is able to keep you from falling. But you yourself can choose to ignore God's help. You could choose to ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit when God makes that way of escape when temptation comes. You can choose to not walk in the way. You can choose to walk in the flesh instead. You see, we're called to make moment by moment choices. And again, comes back to what we said about keeping ourselves in the love of God. But, you know, God is able to keep you from falling. He will give you the grace and the strength in your weakness is his strength. God can do all of that. He's able to do it. But you have to be willing to allow him to do it and to abide in him. Then notice that God is able to present you faultless. Now this is God's work. You see, it's all based upon the completed work of Christ on the cross. All of our sin was paid for in full. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us he became sin. And so that we in exchange have become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We've been clothed in his righteousness and God will Present us faultless before the presence of his glory. You know, Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, Blessed is he, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. Indeed, and amen should be added to that. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it says there, Having predestinated us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Notice this, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. We have been accepted. We're able to be presented faultless because of the work of Jesus Christ. And notice the last thing here, with exceeding joy. Now, there's a condition attached to that because God is able to keep you from falling. He will present you faultless. But if you want to have that exceeding joy, you need to read 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 2 John 1.8, which remind us that we can lose our rewards. We can lose the treasure that we've put in heaven if we sow to the flesh. You see, that promise of exceeding joy depends on our abiding in Christ so he can keep us from falling. You see, if we don't, then, as 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, there will be people that are saved, and yet we're told, yet so as by fire. That doesn't speak of joy. That speaks of people with loss, with sorrow, with sadness, as they realized they wasted their lives on earth, sowing to the things of this world, to the flesh, and so on. The world, the flesh, the devil. There's three great enemies that John speaks about. And then we conclude... To the only wise God, our Saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.
You see, God is the only wise God, but he's also the only one who is truly wise. And that is why we are to go to him. That is why we allow him to do that work of building in our lives through faith. That is why we go to him and we allow his spirit to lead us in prayer. Because he's the only one that truly knows. You know, everyone, we all think we know what is the right way to go. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the ends that are over the ways of death. We're told very clearly in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, I'm sure you know it. You know, trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he should direct your paths. God alone is wise. And notice also, we're told that God is our saviour. Now, of course, Jesus is our saviour, therefore Jesus is God. This verse is speaking of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God is our saviour. And we're told that there be glory, majesty, dominion, power both now and forever. You know, his is the dominion, the power and the glory, and it will be forever. It will never end. You know, it's a great place to leave and springboard next week if the Lord tarries into a study in the book of Daniel, which is what we're going to do, because it's a book that speaks a lot about this coming dominion and power and the glory that God will uh, be seen by all in the world to have as he establishes his throne his kingdom on earth, which will be an everlasting kingdom. So what a great verse to end with. And again, let me remind you, as I said earlier, I believe that this is the closing verse of the Bible in terms of when it was actually written. What a great place. What a great way to end that God is our God, is our savior and the glory, the majesty, dominion and power are his now and forever. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father God, we just thank you for this time this morning, this opportunity to be reminded of your love for us, of the danger, the reality of apostates, but that, Lord, you have made a way for us to walk seated with you in heavenly places, knowing that you who have begun that work in us will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ, and that, Lord, you counsel us, you encourage us, Lord, you, you call us to walk in the way, to walk in the love of God. And so, Father, we pray by your grace that you would help us to do that, Lord, that we would be built up on this most holy faith and that, Lord, we would learn to pray in the Spirit, that when we see you face to face, there would be exceeding joy as we rejoice in your faithfulness and your goodness and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things now.